Hey, Napa Valley lovers, this is Kim, Judd's trainer. I've got him doing ball slams, so I'll be giving you the scoop today. Oh, man. Don't complain, Judd. You're getting sexy for bikini season. This episode features the king of all meat, Bruce Adels. Whether you're a carnivore or not, he's an interesting guy with some good perspective, and you'll dig this show. Before we get to it, go visit Judd at Judd's Hill. Beautiful spot, killer wines, nice folks. Good time guaranteed. Visiting info is at www.judshill.com. While at the website, get some of that fine wine into your cart and then type in JNVS in lowercase letters and get 15% off your wine purchase. Want a better deal? Join Judd's Hill Wine Club. Way fun. That info is on the website, too. All right, Judd. Now, give me a two-minute plank. Oh, boy. The rest of you, enjoy today's show. Get ready for another heap full of fascinating things to know from witty and intriguing people on Judd's Napa Valley Show. No stale script and no rehearsing, live from a Napa studio. You may be that intriguing person on Judd's Napa Valley Show. On Judd's Napa Valley Show. Judd's Napa Judd's Napa Valley, Judd's Napa Valley Show. And now, live from the 1440 KVON studio in the beautiful Napa Valley, it's Judd's Napa Valley Show. I'm Lauren Mole, and here's your host, Chad Fingelstein. Good morning, Lauren Mole. Top of the day, Judd. Top of the day, Lauren. How are you this fine Napa Valley morn? I'm doing great, Judd. How about you? Uh, fantastic, fantastic. What's right. new? You've always got something cooking. Well, in five days, Judd, the big moment is almost here. It is? It is. What is it? Tell me. I will be performing the Star Spangled Banner with a couple of my other friends on Sunday at the Warriors game. Right here in Oakland. Well, yes, but well, over, right, over in Oakland. You're right. Right there in Oakland. There in Here Oakland. is Napa. Here is Napa. But that's you're big right. news. That's going to be at the Oracle Arena in front of tens of thousands of screaming Lauren Mole fans. That's right. And how do folks get to come? They just buy tickets to the game? Or uh, is there a website? Yes. Otherwise? W- yes, it's www. Everybodystar.org. And please note, this website goes 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Can you believe that, Judge? So anytime anybody wants to go on and get these tickets to see Lauren Mole sing the national anthem March 9th at the Warriors game, they can do that? Yes. And in addition to seeing my, my music video. That's right. So everybody, everybody, the website is everybodystar.org. Yes. The foundation is everybody is a star. Yes. And give the plug real quick what they do. Uh, it helps us special needs youth uh, showcase our talents in, in music videos. And it's very cool. Lauren's got a video up there, which is incredible. I love it. Go to that website, everybodystar.org. See Lauren in action. Get tickets to the Warriors game and then see him live in action. Yep, you said it, Judd. So yeah. what's so what's been happening with you? Any exciting new things over at the winery? Well, you know what? Yeah, there's always something exciting. We have an event coming up that is open to the public a week from tonight, March 11th. Uh, we are having a Judd's Hill featured wine night at the new Napa Valley Bistro. It's over there on Clinton Street. It's from 5 to 9 p.m. 
And what it's going to be is uh, just come for dinner. You know, make a reservation because I know uh, it will be busy that night. Make a reservation at their website, which is NapaValleyBistro.net. Come in and you will be treated to a taste of some Judd's Hill wines. There'll be several to taste. And then what we're doing, um, it's not a specifically paired dinner. You can order whatever you want off of their menu. But we will be pouring a special wine that we've never had available to the public, and it's still not really available to the public. There are these events that the Napa Valley Vintners Association puts on every year, uh, the wine auction, Premier Napa Valley. And for Premier Napa Valley, the vintners create one special barrel of wine that is only available at that event. And so most, most of the rest of the world never gets to try it. People read about these events. They never get to try the wine. Well, we have a few extra bottles we put aside. Again, they're not for sale, but they will be available that night. This will be from our um, 2005 Bordeaux blend that we created for Auction Napa Valley 2007. Call it Lot 252. That was the lot number. So it's going to be great. It's going to feature some fruit from our original Howell Mountain Vineyard. And this will really be the only chance for anybody to ever taste this wine, including myself. There's only a few bottles. Otherwise, it all went out to charity. So that's next Tuesday night, March 11th, Napa Valley Bistro. You can find out information at judshill.com by clicking on events. And uh, come on down and join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Wow, sounds great, Judd. Should be a good one. We have got quite a show. We better get to it. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right. Introduce our guest, will you, Lauren? Yes, sir. Okay. He works his magic, not with potions nor spells, but with sausages and books that he so skillfully sells. He's with us today, so watch our pride as it swells. Now let's say hello to Mr. Me, Bruce Zadell. <laughs> I love it. Isn't that a good one? That could be a verse for a song, right? I think so. A I think... song all about pigs. Pigs and and uh, and Lauren. Now Lauren is Pigs a word. Hogs. <laughs> there you go. Go ahead, Judd. Oh no! Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So we've got Bruce Adels here. You are known, I think, by most people originally for your eponymous Bruce Adels sausages, your Adels complete book of pork, the complete book of meat. I mean, you are. I guess the question is, why meat? You are Mister Meat. How did you become the king of all meat? Well, because I started chefing in a place called Poulet, which is a chicken place, but the yeah. truth is that I slipped a lot of sausage and pate in there. Oh, yeah? And having worked around chicken for several years, the last thing I wanted to do was cook chicken. I just got tired of it. So the meat thing seemed kind of a, a good way to go. And um, at the same time, I got fired from Poulet, which is the reason I started the Adel Sausage Company, just trying to make my house payment. So once I had established myself as a sausage maker, obviously that's a, a meaty product. Yeah. It kind of gave me credibility. And uh, my first books were actually about sausage making and cooking with sausage. And then I moved on to books on meat. I did a book called Real Beer and Good Eats. Oh, yeah. When the whole microbrewery thing was taken off in the early 90s. So, um, And I certainly, you know, m my own cooking goes beyond meat. I like fish and I, we have a big old vegetable garden in our house. So. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's nice to have a little niche for yourself because that kind of gives you a, a position as an expert. So that it, it worked out pretty good. Yeah, you've certainly carved out quite a uh, quite a niche in the world of meat. Very cool. Have you always? Have you said you were a cook? But that's I mean, going way back was that always been your track? I even heard that you might be a doctor of some sort. 
Yeah, you know, sometimes you plan a career for yourself and life doesn't always go the way you plan. No, I, I went on and got a PhD and uh, was hoping to be a, a researcher. I was doing cancer research and worked at the National Institute of Health, actually. Uh, but uh, in those days, which was the late 70s, uh, money for research basically came from the government, and it kind of dried up. It was before the whole biotech thing. And uh, my economic decision was if I wanted to stay in the Bay Area, um, I wasn't, there wasn't any future in staying in science. There just wasn't any jobs mm, for me. Mm. And I was a better cook than a scientist. And so your Ph.D. is in? It's in biology, but oh, I, wow. my research uh, was all in um, endocrinology, which is the study of hormones right, right. and how it affected uh, breast cancer. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Because I know you've written about um, hormones as they pertain to the, the animals we eat as well. Well, on a negative, yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, unfortunately, a lot of commodity uh, animals that produce for commodity meat are, are given hormones as part of their diet because it helps to stimulate growth and makes it so they can get to market faster. But I don't think that we need to be consuming those. So I don't really support uh, giving hormones to animals. It, it's actually illegal to give hormones to pigs or chickens, but they do still uh, use hormones in the uh, production of cattle. Mm, mm, okay. So so chickens and pigs, you're not going to find them anymore? It's very confusing because if you go to a typical store and uh, like Whole Foods mm -hmm. and you look at now on their label, it'll say, you know, pork, no antibiotics or hormones. And then there's going to be an asterisk if you look very closely next to the word hormone. And it's uh, and it'll say it's illegal to feed hormones to pigs. Period. Oh. So it's kind of a non sequitur, but it's oh, it's see. a marketing term in, in that respect because most people associate those two terms together: no antibiotics or hormones uh, given to these animals. But uh, for me, it's confusing. And when labels are confusing, I think that people tend not to believe in labels. And what's the point of having a label uh, supported by a government agency, the USDA, and you know having sort of uh, you know, non sequitur information on there, so I I think it's stupid. So that's yeah. my that's my opinion on yeah, that. Yeah, labels should be very clear, and not confusing to the consumer. I think that is the point yeah. of them in the first place, right? It is confusing. So so how do you select when you're out shopping and you? I mean, you obviously really know your stuff. So actually, what advice would you give to somebody who is out there trying to find the right cut? You can choose whatever meat you want, but what what, what does one look for? Well, for the the right cut, you always have to start with uh, what are you going to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's that's the first piece of information because you certainly wouldn't want to go and buy the very expensive beef tenderloin and make it into a pot roast. Oh, right, right, okay. Um, because it's already super tender and it's not that great of a pot roast, plus it's going to cost close to $20 a pound. Mm -hmm. But if you want to make a pot roast, you probably want to go out and buy a boneless chuck. So once you make your decision, then there you look at the options for cuts. Um, uh, here in the Napa Valley, I think we have some knowledgeable butchers and some small butcher uh, counters in some of the markets, and sometimes that'll be helpful. But if you own one of my books, uh, I go into a lot of details. Um, not only do I give you my like a primary cut for the recipe, but several alternatives. And it's always fun to try cuts that you haven't tried before, lesser-known cuts. So like in the pot roast situation, uh, one of the really great cuts that people don't know much about is actually the neck because it's very rarely merchandised. But the neck, ah. which is really gnarly, when you cook it long and slow, gets really soft and, and the, the uh, 
the connective tissue actually gelatinizes oh, and becomes okay. soft and unctuous and it makes an incredible <laughs> pot roast. But uh, yeah, so it's it's nice to know some of the lesser known cuts because the price of meat, as we're all aware, is really expensive yeah. and really going up. You know, it's because of the the severe droughts that we've had in the Midwest and now in California. And so the supply of animals is that it's well, like beef is at its lowest point since 1951. The so, supply of it. Yeah, the actual number of animals in the herd. Oh my goodness. Um, and think about it. In 1951, I mean, it was probably about one third to you know 40 percent less Americans kicking around in 1951. So right. a long time ago, 60 something years ago. My goodness. Yeah. You know, they're going to have to start importing something. I just heard the craziest story on um, I think it was This American Life about. Um, I don't recall the time frame, if it was late 19th, mid-19th century, uh, whenever it was, there was there was definitely a beef and other animal shortage, and there were some serious thinkers proposing that the U.S. import, raise, and feed our population hippopotamus meat. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard that? <laughs> what, what do you think? Uh, obviously, I've never been around a hippopotamus. <laughs> they're one of the nastier animals. Plus, they're not very many hippopotamuses. You know, it's you know, it's one of those species that unfortunately is not thriving at this point. Well, not now. But I guess back then you could get some from Africa. They were thinking about bringing them down to uh, Louisiana, where they would live right. in the swamps and they would eat the. Uh, there was a certain invasive uh, flower. They would eat that. Then the people would eat them. Boy, just shows a complete lack of uh, of knowledge about biology. As I'm told, hippo. Hippopotamuses are the most dangerous animal in Africa, and and more uh, more deaths are caused by hippopotamuses than lions and tiger. Well, there's no tigers, but they're very very vicious. They, they look kind of big and silly, but yeah. they're they're really nasty. <laughs> and if you've ever seen the size of their mouth and those yeah. front teeth, uh, you do not want to be around a hippopotamus. Um, so I can't imagine <laughs> having a hippopotamus. They're not domesticated in Africa. No, no, so. they could feed a lot of folks off one of those. Oh yeah, they're big. <laughs> Well, okay, well, let's get back to your book. Then. <laughs> you, you know, you do. It's 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 really well laid out, and we're talking about uh, your book called the Great Meat Cookbook. And you get into, I mean, there's beef, there's pork, there's bison, there's goat. You talk about goat, uh, different dishes, and you do recommend which cuts, how to um, select them, prepare them. There are so many different terms that you talk about in the book. <laughs> And that brings us to our lightning round. Bruce Adels, you now have 90 seconds to clearly explain these nine meat descriptions that you talk about in your book. Are you ready? Okay. Heirloom breed. Uh, these are animals that uh, were raised a while ago and have gone out of favor because they don't uh, adapt well to modern husbandry. Pasture raised. Uh, it's a marketing term that has very little meaning, but it's supposed to imply that the animal actually was raised in a pasture. Okay, great. Uh, humanely raised. We'll cut the music. We'll just go through this. Humanely raised, uh, there's actually a, an organization that certifies specifically what that means, and it involves treating the animals uh, with respect and lots of other terms, and uh, usually there's a sticker on the label. Grass-fed. That means that uh, this is for cattle and sheep, that it, it spends its entire life after mama's milk eating grass, only grass and never anything else. Grass finished. 
It means that it also spent its entire life eating grass, and at the final fattening point was was left on grass as opposed to moving to a feedlot and fed corn. Raised without antibiotics or growth promotants. I think that's self-explanatory. Yeah, so no, antibiotics are not given, period, unless the animals are sick, and then they're they're not. They can't have that uh, d designation on the label. And growth promotants are usually hormones. Okay, natural. No meaning whatsoever. It's defined by the USDA as no um, artificial ingredients. So all meat is natural. USDA certified organic. Organic again has a, a, a huge list of requirements, but basically no antibiotics, hormones, and only fed organic feed, and that includes grass. Well, you did it, Bruce. Lauren Mole, tell him what he's won. You'll be the shiniest ride on the road with a year's supply of Turtle Wax, the San Francisco treat. Congratulations, Bruce. All right, well done. All right, you passed our lightning round with flying colors. So I'm curious. I do want to go back to some of these. When you see grass-fed, and that is a big thing I see on, on um, restaurant menus, in the store, uh, does that really make a big difference in quality of the? And we're talking about beef at this point, correct? Uh, beef or yeah, buffalo, you bison. must often see it uh, on beef. Um, you don't see it on bison, and it, and most people don't realize that the bulk of the bison that's produced are actually the animals are put in feedlots and fed grain, oh. which is very very unpleasant for the animal. And bison do not like to be fenced. They they are not a domesticated animal. They, no, no, they had. They're, they're, they're put on earth to, ro to roam the prairie, and so it, it puts a lot of stress on them. Mm -hmm. um, it's, not, it's not really the issue of meat quality. It's, it's got to do with the biology of cattle. Uh, cattle's digestive systems, which are unique, as we all know, they have several stomachs, are designed to, to, to use grass um, as a nutrient. So it can, it can break down the cellulose, um, and uh, most animals can't do that, actually. And so it has, there's no need to give it uh, corn. And so when, when the animal is fed corn, which, you know, has a much um, more caloric uh, uh, snack for them, they, they uh, overtax their system and they're, they're susceptible to things like ulcers and things like that. A lot of this stuff was pointed out several years ago by uh, Michael Pollan. He made people aware of it. And so a lot of people just decided that they don't want to have animals that are treated that way. Yeah. And they want, they want, and there's also a flavor difference. Grass-fed beef tastes more like what beef is meant to taste like. A lot of people uh, do not like it, but um, I think it's, I, I look at grass-fed beef as a separate eating experience. Mm. I don't try and compare it to um, corn, corn-fed. Um, and I, I really like it. The, the problem is that um, the meat is only going to be as good as the grass. So uh, it's a seasonal meat. And a lot of people, are, you know, we're all used to seeing beef in the market all the time. Oh, sure, sure. And especially here in California, um, you know, this is when the grass is finally starting to look good. Yeah, we got a little rain. And the, so the peak season, assuming we have plenty of rain, is really May and June and April when the grass is at, at its best. Then, mm -hmm. as we all know, the grass goes brown in the in the summer months and stays till you know well into november so um you don't and the problem is that that's really lean meat it can be tough so it's much better to buy grass-fed beef in season that the uh the, the provider has has frozen i mean i would much rather have the right uh, quality meat frozen than to buy it off season when it's not at its peak 
Oh, I see. So you're an advocate. Frozen meat's okay. Yeah, as long as you thaw it properly, which just simply means you do it slowly in the refrigerator. And here in the Napa Valley, we have some really good Long Meadow Ranch. Yeah, sure. And we have a couple of other really good um, grass-fed producers, and they are using some of these heirloom breeds. Long Meadow uses um, the Highland cattle, which are these long, shaggy-looking animals. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting. I've seen so. pictures of them on yeah. the website. They look like something out of uh, Star Wars or something. Really? really odd. Yeah. Looking cows. So those come from Scotland. So, um, and I'd give it a try. A good place to start is like at a farmer's market. Mm -hmm. And it's always kind of nice to actually talk to the farmer himself and ask questions, get to know the guy. Um, and uh, you give him feedback and that kind of thing, or her. Right, so, right. Yeah. They say you are what you eat. And you have traveled, I think, the world, the country, eating, discovering things, meeting people. Uh, you can get a sense of a culture by what they're eating, probably what cuts of meat. Do you want to talk about maybe some of the travels you've taken and what, how you see uh, what maybe other countries do a little differently with maybe the same animals that we have or what are some completely odd animals they might eat that we don't? And then I even notice here within our own country, there are differences in the cuts. Like we eat tri-tip out here, but you mentioned that back east and no one knows what you're talking about. Right. Well, let's start with that first question. Yeah. In, in most of the world, let's, let's face it, uh, meat is, is a luxury item. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of cultures where, you know, where they just, the average home could not afford meat, have managed to come up with some amazing dishes out of the, 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 the meager cuts that they do get. Uh, in our own country, um, soul food, you know, that originated off the plantation. Obviously, the slave population wasn't eating the, the great hams and the... Uh. And the so they were finding ways to make good with the neck bones and the tails and all that kind of and stuff. And the chitlins. And the chitlins and things like that. So um, I've had a lot of great dishes, you know, made with these these uh, underappreciated cuts. And I have been to places like Vietnam and mm -hmm. China and uh, all over Europe. Uh, m most recently, I was in Calabria, which is a very poor area of Italy. Okay. And there they, again, they make use... Um, well, basically what they do with a lot for to get the meat flavored into things, they make a specific kind of a sausage. It's very high in fat. It's called andouille. And they use that as a flavor component. Uh, they do raise a lot of vegetables, particularly things like eggplants and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so they use that to give a, a, a savory flavor, but basically it's a cuisine based on vegetables with a little bit of pork thrown in. And I find that that's often a case where the meat may be used as a flavor component. I call it meat as a condiment. So, oh, okay. Now, uh, as far as t you had mentioned, asked about uh, other types of animals, supposedly goat meat is the most popular meat on earth. I, I, I don't think um, from a per capita it's the, it's the most consumed because there's an awful lot of Chinese out there and they eat an awful lot of pork. Right, so, right. Um, but goat uh, is not very well uh, eaten. Uh, it's basically an ethnic meat in, in this country. Yeah. Greeks and Middle Eastern, um, Mexicans, birria, that, that kind of thing. But it's starting, the chefs have discovered it. It's a fabulous meat. If you like lamb, you're going to love goat. You know, I had only ever had it in the ethnic sense at um, Greek festival, as you say, uh, birria, as you mentioned, uh, when I was in India, wrapped up in the paratha. Right. But this past fall, I was in New York City and went to the Blue Hill Restaurant, right? And which is this amazing place. I'd never been there, but I'd heard wonderful things. I guess the current James Beer Outstanding 
restaurant. We'll get into those too because your wife has one of those. Yes, <laughs> but we'll get into that after the break. But uh, so I, I just said, you know, whatever they serve me, I'm going to eat. They, the chef wanted to cook for us, and the meat course came out, and it was goat three ways. Fantastic. And I thought, okay, let's see what this is like. And it looked like uh, little medallions, perhaps a tenderloin type. There were some um, chops. And then there was a steak of some sort. I don't know the cut. And I've got to say, it it went against all my prejudices of goat. It wasn't uh, gamey. It wasn't stinky. It was this delicious, rich, kind of meaty um, meat. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, was, it, it was great. It's actually quite a bit more mild than lamb. Uh, they, these tend to be very young goats, kid, mm-hmm. kid goats. Um, and you mentioned three ways. The reason that the restaurant has to do that is they're only sold as whole animals. Ah, so, gotta so you, you don't have enough chops. To, you can't do chops. <laughs> right, okay? Okay, okay. I mean, you're going to get four <laughs> orders of chops. So you have to do a sampler plate. I see. And often with the bits and pieces, you'll see some goat sausage or a goat burger or a goat patty on there as mm-hmm. well. It's actually quite expensive. Um, oh. it's, that's the, that's the, the stumbling block for, for restaurants. It's one of the most expensive meats. And that's because it's a tiny little animal. Let's say it weighs 25 to 40 pounds. But you still have to pay the processor so much per animal. So uh, when you divide that through the weight, that adds a lot of cost, 2 or $3 sure. a pound. So um, it makes it kind of a luxury meat. But as you point out, India, I mean, it's super popular. And the reason is goats are incredibly adaptable. We all know that goats yeah. eat pretty much everything. Whatever. So even on, I've been, used to go to the island of Anguilla, which is um, a, a very barren island in the Caribbean. I mean, mm-hmm. there's hardly anything. It's just basically rock. Okay. But they did have goats, and they made their goat curry. Mm-hmm. And the goats could even thrive in, a, in an area where they couldn't even grow vegetables. So um, it's. It, I think it's a great animal, and hopefully, um, it'll never become huge because of the cost. But I think it's it's one of those uh, types of meats that's going to grow because your experience was very positive, and, and most yeah. people's is. It was so. wonderful, and as we mentioned before, it's uh, you have some ways to make goat in your great meat cookbook, so folks can get some ideas and go get some goat. Well, I, I have that goat curry we're talking about. Yeah. I, I um, I've uh, got to know some of the local chefs from the island of Anguilla, and. One of them made the best goat curry I ever had, and so you know, I, I, he wouldn't really give me the recipe, <laughs> but he gave me some ideas, and I played around, and I thought it was a really good recipe. Oh, how fun! Well, maybe I'm going to check that one out. I, I perused it. Maybe I'll actually try it. I'm going to ask you real quick before we get to break. I was looking through some of your bio information, and there was a little question and answer with you posted on your own personal uh, website, and it said the strangest, most exotic food ever eaten. And there was no story behind it. All it said was sheep eyeballs. I'm hoping I can hear the story. How did, how did you find yourself eating sheep eyeballs? We're going to do it now, or is there going to be a break? Well, how long is the story? No, it's not very long. Okay, then go ahead. Years ago, there was a guy named um, Alan Davidson, and he wrote a book called Unmentionable Cuisine. Yeah. And a restaurant in Berkeley threw um, a dinner honoring Alan, and he was there. And they served a lot of weird things, including <laughs> sheep eyeballs, and sheep eyeballs um, are not edible. Oh, oh. in your <laughs> really? opinion? or No, I mean, uh, we don't want to go into all the detail. but Yeah, maybe not. They're very chewy. <laughs> I mean, you just really can't. But a lot of the other things that were served, there was... Um, Various types of testicles, um, <laughs> which were quite edible, frankly. Um, oh. Yeah, uh, I think they were turkey and, and duck, now that I think about it. And a bunch of other things. Some of these cuts we've been talking about, some of these uh, you know, lesser-known cuts, one of them that's become really trendy is cheek meat. 
Mm. And you can go, uh, there's a restaurant, B, uh, Coco 500 in San Francisco. Her signature dish is, is beef cheek, which is like a little miniature pot roast. Yeah, yeah. And she's had that on the menu, uh, Loretta Keller, from day one. And that's like 15, 20 years. It's always on the menu. It's, it's a great cut of meat. It's it, it's it's nice. I've had some uh, cheek meat before, so maybe we're forming a new uh, Bruce Adele's uh, cookbook. Your next one, Bruce Adele's tantalizing testicles. And on that note, <laughs> Lauren, we need to take a break. We'll be back with more of Judd's Napa Valley Show right after these messages. And now back to Napa Valley's ambassador for good times, fine wines. Man, lame rhymes. Chad <laughs> Fingelstein. Ah, uh, Lauren, that one gets me every time. Thank you, sir. Our guest today is Mr. Bruce Adels, and we're talking meat because that's what he does. Uh, before the break, we were talking about goat, and you mentioned that your your lovely wife, Nancy, who has two fabulous restaurants in San Francisco, one of which also James Beard Award for Outstanding Restaurant at uh, Boulevard, uh, you said her other restaurant, Prospect, is serving goat yeah uh, so boulevard so the beard foundation which uh, gives out awards for chefs and cookbooks and things like that um and it's a pretty prestigious organization they have special dinners so they picked out boulevard as the outstanding restaurant not just for the bay area that they did do that a yeah. while ago but for the whole country uh, which is a big deal um I, I'm very proud of Nancy. She's on the long list right now for outstanding chef in the whole country, and hopefully she'll oh, get fantastic. Yeah, she'll make it to the short list, which will be announced shortly. Um, but her other restaurant, Prospect, which is a newer restaurant, way more casual with a kind of a very active bar scene, uh, does um, does some interesting things. And they started serving goat. And the reason you're seeing goat on the menu of fine restaurants is because the supply for goat. Has changed. You know, we all think of goats as, as producers for for goat cheese, but there is uh, breeds of goat that are I- ideally suited for for meat. So mm. these are much more muscular. These are are really meat goats, and the most famous or best known is one from South Africa called a boar goat. So what, what's um, helped chefs is that there are people now in Napa and Sonoma. Uh, there's a lady out in Petaluma that are raising these goats. And selling them to restaurants. So we now have a high-quality supply because you can't really put goat on the menu if we had that old stinky goat. And this can be pretty tough. (laughs) Right, right. Although, you know, in the Mexican community, they're able to deal with mature goats and produce some great things like Mm -hmm. birria, you know, a stew. And Yeah, so, so Nancy was starting to get those coming in. And so it was kind of a challenge for the chef because they had to butcher their own... Uh, you know, comes in as a as a whole animal, and right. then coming up with what to do with all the various parts. So it's it's uh, they like a challenge. You know, a lot of better restaurants like like the idea of a challenge. So mm-hmm. it's kind of fun. And then for the diner, they get to try a little bit of the leg and a little bit from the shoulder. A that chop. sampler plate. You're yeah, talking. a little yeah. sampler plate. Yeah. Um, and of course, goat takes well to lots of spices because it is so popular all around the world. We talked about curry, mm-hmm. but the Chinese also eat a lot of goat, so it goes well with you know chilies and garlic and soy sauce, that kind of thing. And they eat a lot of goat in in Italy as well, and in southern uh, southern France, so and Spain. So there's a lot of options there, including Prospect right here in San Francisco. Yeah, so you. Know, I, I can't say for sure it's on the menu right now because the menu does change a lot. Mm-hmm. 
but it certainly has been on the menu. So uh, if the best thing to do is if you really want to know if there's goat there, then give, you know, call them and see. And I, I mentioned that Coco 500. I think they had goat on the menu when I was there a few weeks ago. So uh, you'll, you'll see it around. Yeah, if you've got a hankering for some goat, it can be found. You can talk about how prices are going up because supply is down. And what, what do you have some advice for folks how to put a good meal together for not you know, with, without breaking the bank? I do. Um, f- well, we, we've already alluded to looking for some of these underappreciated cuts. I, I'm going to start with one of my favorite, which is actually lamb neck. If I'm going to do something that's stewed, like a curry or a lamb stew, that's my meat of choice. And we, we talked about beef neck and having it's all gnarly. But when you cook it, it becomes incredibly succulent and mm. tender. You have the bones to deal with, but I kind of like bones myself. Yeah. So, um, And that's pretty reasonable. So I always – the way to really save money on, on a budget – uh, when buying meat is number one look for tasty but less expensive cuts so there's neck there's shank um, there's um, cuts from the shoulder area but also thinking in terms of what are you going to do with the leftovers and coming up with interesting dishes with the leftovers so going back to lamb neck let, let's say we made a curry with it yeah and so we have meat left over. It's going to come off the bone really easily. So we, we take that meat off. And then we make something called a biryani, which is basically a rice dish. And we put, you know, we add this a little bit of um, onions and stuff like that to the rice. Sometimes they put in things like currants, actually. Mm. And then you add that meat. So you have a whole other meal with that leftover uh, lamb neck. And so you're getting at least two meals. Or you could turn it into a barley soup, you know, oh, a, yeah. a, a lamb and barley soup. So, uh, and... What I try to do in my cookbooks is make suggestions and even lead you to another recipe on what to do with leftovers. Um, I just think it's, you know, it's it's really, really expensive. And meat is, um, I mean, beef is really going to be expensive, and so is pork. Um, lamb is less affected because, frankly, uh, our national consumption is one pound, less than one pound per person per year. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because it's a, a lot of people don't eat any lamb, mm-hmm. and then the people that do tend to come from various ethnic groups like the Middle East right, and right. India. Well, leftovers are a great way to stretch it out, and if you can get creative, all the better. So certainly appreciated that it's um, covered in your book, on your cooking TV series also. I've, I've looked up online to see some of the episodes, and there were at least a couple about what to do with leftovers. This is your uh, Good Cooking with Bruce Adels. Yeah, which I, I think is still airing on the Live Well channel, which you get on cable. Um, yeah, they can all be seen, actually. I, I checked this morning just to make sure, but uh, www.livewellnetwork.com and look up you know, Bruce Adele's. Yeah, you can watch it on the website, which is how I've seen most yeah. of the episodes. Yeah, well, that, that's really how I cook. I'm, I'm, uh, if I was going to say what's my really strong point as a cook, it's dealing with leftovers. Um, yeah. <laughs> Something my wife doesn't like to do at all, and so oh, no. half the time she won't eat the stuff I make. She doesn't. She grew up in a family that was a lot wealthier than mine, so oh. she's spoiled. But I love the challenge of cooking with leftovers. So, um. well, you tackle it, and you, you you pass on the info. We appreciate that. You know, I was looking at some of those episodes, and I was I was shocked to see that a couple of them even featured vegetarian recipes. You were working with tomatoes. You were making pizza that didn't have meat on it. 
Yeah. I, I know you, earlier you said, yes, you do eat vegetables. Well, you know. I've, got, I've got a little story then. Um, okay. One of the magazines I write for on a regular basis is Eating Well magazine. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, they usually give me the assignments that involve meat. I, I have, in the current issue, actually, we're talking about grass-fed beef. Yeah. So it's a whole big story on grass-fed beef. I did uh, five or six recipes, and that's on the newsstands. But... The assignment I got a couple years ago was vegetables, and they wanted me to do um, all different kinds of stuffed vegetables. So one of the things I did was like uh, acorn squash stuffed with uh, red lentil curry. Okay, so it wasn't stuffed with meat. I'm thinking no the, meat. Ed- the editors are thinking, who can we get to write about vegetables? I know, Bruce Adels. No meat. <laughs> okay. No meat in these recipes. I did a stuffed onion. Uh-huh. In fact, you were there for the the idea for that because so Judd and I usually see each other Christmas Eve at at the home of the folks that own Terra Restaurant. That's true. And uh, Hero, the chef, did a, a stuffed onion where he actually took the the the, um, the individual layers of onion and stuffed those individual layers and forms kind of a football shape. Yeah. And I was incredibly impressed with that. So I use that. I did use cheese in that one. Okay. I was allowed to use cheese, okay. but just no meat. No meat. And that was delicious. So, um, and I got big compliments from eating well, but I told him not to give me any, any more vegetarian <laughs> assignments. It ruins my image. Exactly. Who needs that? You know, okay, I'll ruin your image here uh, since you mentioned the, the Christmas Eve. About a month or so ago, I was in the grocery store, and there was a woman doing a demo, and it was Bruce Adel's brand... Sausages and meatballs. Sausages, of course, and then there were some meatballs they were rolling out. Now, as I understand, you are no longer the owner of the Bruce Adel's brand. Are you still involved? Then I'll get to the story. I do want to No, actually, out. I left there quite a number of years ago. Uh, it's now owned by a, a big national company called Hillshire Brands. Oh, okay. But I have reached out to Hillshire because no matter what I tell people that I'm not involved, it doesn't compute. So I figured well, I might as well. Your face and name is right, right on there. There you go. Like, I don't know this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I figured that, uh, and there's, I like the people that run the company, and so we're trying to figure out how I can, you know, get back involved, um, and, um, you know, it's better to be involved than to not be involved, So that, but nothing's happening at this point. I would think with your name and image, it would be nice to have some say so. So anyway, I'm walking through the store, and this woman, you know, stops to ask if I want to try it, and she says, are you familiar with Bruce Adel's? And I said, uh, of course I am. Uh, he sleeps with my wife every Christmas Eve. And she got a shocked look on her face. And I didn't explain, but I will now. And I took a meatball and said, delicious. And I walked on and took the coupon. Um, but the backstory is that there were a couple of years in a row. We do end up at this Christmas Eve dinner every year together. And there were a couple of years that after dinner, um, you know, I know you work very hard. My wife, very, very hard worker. And you weren't even sitting next to each other on different sofas even, but we looked over, and for like two years in a row, you had kind of nodded off, and and my uh. wife had nodded off, so we just joked that they were well, uh, not ju- necessarily sleeping together, but sleeping at the same time well, in the same room. Yeah, this is all true. What Judd <laughs> hasn't mentioned is the size of this meal that we're eating on Christmas <laughs> That's Eve. That's true. Let's just say that we uh, were very, very, very well fed. And I, well uh, beveraged. I remember that one time Hero decided to do lobster. Oh, man. And he bought two-pound lobsters, and he figured that a a typical portion would be two of these lobsters per person. So needless to say, we got lots of leftover lobsters for, you know, for breakfast uh, or lobster rolls the next day. It was fantastic. And I do remember him doing a whole—well, both of them, Lisa and Hero, did a whole—they did a Lebanese-style dinner. This goes way, way back. And they had a whole lamb—I mean, a whole— 
It was missing the head and the hooves, and that's about it. Everything else was there. I must say that was my favorite Christmas of all. I mean, yeah. I really love that Middle Eastern food. So. Oh, man. It was good. I'd never quite experienced uh, a lamb like that, but it did turn out to be delicious. We do have some holidays coming up. Easter, Passover. Got any recommendations what people can uh, be doing? I do, and um, we used to celebrate. So uh, my background is Jewish, but I'm not very religious, so... And well, not with Bruce Adele's complete pork cookbook no. on the shelf. So we, we kind of combined the two holidays, and we called it crossover. Okay. Crossover. Um, and That's very yeah, funny. So we took the best of both. <laughs> so we had the matzo ball soup, uh-huh. but we also had a roast ham. <laughs> so, um, what a juxtaposition. Yeah, it was great. We didn't do the, you know, the, the, the whole Seder kind of thing, but yeah, crossover was great. Um, well, ham, ham is the traditional uh, Easter Enjoyment, but uh, a lot of people have switched to leg of lamb, and I, I particularly love le- leg of lamb, and it's it's a great roast for feeding a small group of let's say six to eight people. With a ham, you can feed twenty people if you buy a whole ham. And I've got a lot of information in my books, especially my latest one, the Great Meat Cookbook, on um, how to choose a really good ham and how to cook it so it comes out really succulent and to make not just a glaze but a sauce because it always seemed crazy to me that people glaze ham and so that that flavors the outside where all the fat is mm. but it doesn't really flavor the meat and and so I like to make turn my glazes into sauces so you have both a sauce and a glaze ah. and it's a very simple method to do that you just put some liquid in the bottom of the pan to catch some of the juices and then you turn that into a sauce so as far as ham goes, I always say to spend the money to buy the best. When it comes to ham, it's all about selling you water. And mm. the cheaper the ham, the more water you're buying. Because they're actually allowed to pump the ham with a brine solution. So uh, the best quality would be something just labeled ham. But most stores don't have that anymore. But ham and natural juices you're going to find. And uh, I would recommend buying that, and preferably with the bone in, because it tastes a lot better, I think, when the bone's still in. Okay. Good to know, all you ham lovers. You know, my grandfather, I had one grandfather who kept strictly kosher. This wouldn't have flown. Other grandfather used to make a ham marinated and glazed with Manischewitz wine. (laughs) Now, there's your crossover. That's crossover. (laughs) Yeah, there's your crossover right there. You didn't ask me what we drink on crossover. Okay, what do you, okay. Hey, Bruce, so what do you drink on uh, crossover? We holiday? drink fine Napa Valley wine, of course. Of course you do. <laughs> we don't drink Manischewitz. No offense. <laughs> oh, boy. Where'd it go from here? There's so many questions, and we're running out of time. I want to make sure we get in, you know, everything. You're just such an interesting guy, and you have such a, uh, a body of work to your books. Well, let's talk about how do folks find your books. Is there a good website to send them to? Um, well, uh Last year, I did an event at Whole Foods. Uh, they have a kind of a demo kitchen there with co- uh, Copperfields. And so I've tried to keep Copperfields um, bookstores supplied with signed copies. I don't know whether they still have signed copies, mm. but I-, I think that's a good place to start. Obviously, you can always buy the books on the big online sure. guys. But, sure. but if you want a, a chance of getting a signed copy, um, I, would, I would definitely go to Copperfields. Okay, right here in Napa. Yeah. And uh, for fun, what do you do for fun? I mean, it sounds like you do some gardening. Of course, you're cooking, but that's also work. What do you do unrelated to food for fun? Well, we have sitting here at our feet next to Lauren here, a little peanut. Yeah, she's been very which quiet. Which is our little puppy Shih Tzu. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I, I play with her and, and uh, 
Oh, she just woke up and she's looking at me. Oh, you said her name. I can't. I can't mention about uh, specific meals because she'll get excited if I mention the D word or the or the B word. Okay. But, um, um, and I well, I live over in Healdsburg, so I really enjoy that whole area and and just hanging out and and um, we live out in the country, so just taking walks on on country roads and things like that. Do a little craft and antiquing. I, I do. I that, I, I, that, that is my my passion is arts and crafts, antiques. And what do you have a specific genre or? Niche? Well, that is the arts and crafts period, which is basically 1900 to 1915. Um, and With certain items that you? Uh, yeah, um, things like lamps and and um, a copper mm. and uh, silver. So, and there's some very good antiques. I don't know the Napa area, but there's some, some very good ones in Sebastopol, and that's where I tend to go. Ah, yeah, cruising the Sebastopol antique row. Yep. Bruce Adels, you are a well-known celebrity chef, cookbook author, man of the world, who has been the subject of many articles, television documentaries, magazine spreads but i don't know that anybody has ever asked you this question do you go nuts for donuts uh no <laughs> well well you know bruce he's bringing a peep box I, over to well, you right now i prefer a bagel myself <laughs> ah, okay well for crossover <laughs> but i, uh, I won't say no yeah i was gonna say you don't have to eat this if you don't go nuts perhaps you'd still like to have one and i did get one specifically for you you don't need to take it but see if you can guess which one of these beautiful Donuts, I might have thought of you. Well, there's uh, a, lo a long skinny one with a slice of bacon on top. <laughs> That's right. The bacon You know, I just bark. saw a photograph of that one. I, 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 I am going to force myself to eat that as soon as we're off the air. Okay. Well, you can, you can take a nibble right now if you want. And while you're, while you're eating that bacon maple, what kind of meat dish would you pair with that maple bacon donut? It's already got meat on it, but what else would you add? What meat extravaganza would you add to that? I think I would uh, serve it on a slice. Well, more bacon, probably. One slice yeah. of bacon is enough, but yeah. serve it, that's pretty good bacon. Yeah. Um, serve but, it buttercream on, bakery. Yeah. Serve it on a um, couple slices of ham, and then just pour <laughs> ma maple syrup over the whole thing. <laughs> That sounds delicious. And now it's time to play everyone's favorite party game here on Judd's Napa Valley Show. This is Mad Libs. That's right. It's time to play everyone's favorite fill-in-the-word game. Are you ready, Bruce? I am. All right. You know how this works. The first thing I'm going to need from you is a noun. A canine. Canine. You got one sitting at your feet right now. A year. This could be any year. 1844. 1844. Whoa. That came right to mind. Did something happen in 18... Well, never mind. Don't answer that. We're going to find out. An adjective. Scrumptious. Perfect. Scrumptious. A number. Any number? 1349. <laughs> You're quick. This is good. A plural noun. Puppies. Oh. Puppies. Keeping with the canine thing. Oh, good. An adjective. Raunchy. <laughs> okay, I can't wait to see where this is going to go. And one more adjective. Uh, ladylike. Ladylike. All right. There we go. Okay, we have now completed this. What I've done is I looked up your biographical information, 
online, found a nice segment from your impressive bio, and we have now just rewritten a portion of it via this game. Uh-oh. Yes, indeed. Are you ready? Of course. Peanut, are you ready? Lauren, are you buckled in? Yes, sir. Okay, here we go. Bruce Adels, this is your life. Here we go. With his bearded face on the packages, everyone knows Bruce Adels as the founder of the Adels Gourmet Canine Empire. That's not off to a good start. <laughs> that sounds very questionable. Okay. Well, hot dogs. Okay, there you go. Since 1844, when he sold the company, <laughs> he has become a scrumptious expert in all things meat. Well, that works. Yeah, you are kind of scrumptious, I'm told. At last count, he has written 1,349 cookbooks, four uh, of which have received cookbook award nominations. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of a male Rachel uh, Ray. Is that my dog barking? Yeah, there's Peanut. <laughs> Peanut is excited for you. His first book... <laughs> oh, she knows what's coming. I just read ahead. Peanut, you're not going to like this. All right. His first book, Hot Puppies and Raunchy Flavors. <laughs> oh, man. That sounds like her breakfast this morning. <laughs> oh, no. oh, dear. Anyway, Hot Puppies and Raunchy Flavors received the IACP Julia Child Award for the Best Single Subject Cookbook in 1991. The Complete Meat Cookbook was another hit. Nominated for a James Beard Award in 1999, as was Bruce Adele's Ladylike Pork Book in 2005. And Bruce Adele's That Is Your Life. I want to thank you very much for joining us here today. You can find his books at all great places where books are sold, including right here in Napa at Copperfields. And uh, looking forward to trying out some of these recipes come the holidays. It's been great. This is Lauren Mall speaking for Judd's Napa Valley Show. A Gilamar production.